We um, have come now to the place where Jesus is now going to begin his public ministry. And he's already been uh, water baptized by John the Baptist in the, in the Jordan River there. He's been marked out as the Messiah and also as the Son of God. And he was also really there in that river that day, really just uh, to all the people that were on the shore there seeing Jesus being baptized. It was really a confirmation that John the Baptist and his ministry was legit. The Messiah had come. And the people that were there uh, witnessing that saw Jesus that day being marked out as the Messiah. This morning's message, I titled it, The Ministry of the King Begins. And as I've shared in the past, when you're in the Gospels, you kind of have to jump around to get the full picture sometimes. And we're going to do that uh, this morning a little bit. So I would like you to turn to, um, I said Matthew, but let's start out in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So if you'll turn there with me. Jesus, his days of preparation, as I uh, have shared over the last couple weeks, consisted really of his water baptism, but also him being driven out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for those 40 days. All of this was done, these days of preparation really were told to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that everything that it was transpiring in that baptism of Jesus really was going to be a future picture really of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of the world. And then he was led off into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit uh, to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Just think of how our Lord can relate to you and I, because he's been there. It's not like the Lord can't relate to us. He's been in that place of temptation. He put himself, God the Father sent him and drove him into the wilderness to be tempted for these 40 days. In the book of Luke, in chapter 1, we read in in verse 1 that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he returned from the Jordan River and then we're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is a point that Luke brings out really here that's not in Matthew, but it says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when I think about Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think if if he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how much more do I? How much more do I need his power in my life? If he needed that before he was driven out into the wilderness, how much more do I need the Holy Spirit and the fullness of his Spirit in my life? When you gave your life to Christ, you were born again. And Christ, by his Holy Spirit, came and made residence in your body. He came to dwell within you. But he also has told us that we need to be baptized in his Holy Spirit. We need to have the fullness of God's Spirit really overflowing in our life. We need it for power. To be able to say no to sin. To be able to go through those times of temptation. I need God's Spirit in all of its power, working in me. And that simply happens by you asking God, God, fill me, empty me of myself, and then fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need that daily, Lord, to follow after you. I need it to be victorious in my walk. I need it so that I might be a witness for you, that I might have boldness to open my mouth to tell somebody about you. God, give me the fullness of your spirit in my life. We need to be baptized in God's Holy Spirit. Whatever you want to call it. Some people get freaked out on that word. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. All I say is that if you've never been baptized in God's Holy Spirit, you simply need to ask God. You might be saved, but maybe you've never been baptized with His Holy Spirit. You just simply need to ask God, and He wants to baptize you in His Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 1.8, 
after Jesus had risen from the dead and he was about to ascend into heaven, he told his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, The connection of God's Holy Spirit coming upon you and filling you and baptizing you in his spirit so that you might be a witness for Christ. I know what it is to go out and try to be used of the Lord and to open my mouth for Christ and to do it really in the efforts of my flesh. Maybe you've experienced that. It's very frustrating, and it's not very fruitful. But when God, by his Spirit, baptizes you and fills you with his Holy Spirit, it's incredible what God will do through you. And it'll be one of those times that you'll sit back and go, you know what, that wasn't me, that was all God. And when you can say that with your mouth, that's a good thing. But being full of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you won't be tempted. Just because you get filled with God's Spirit, the tempter's still there, and he will come along to tempt you. We read in Luke 4.13, look in your Bibles, it tells us that when the devil had ended every temptation, look what it says there, he ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus, and what's it say? Until an opportune time. You know what that tells me? Satan never gives up. He didn't give up on Jesus and he won't give up on you. He will continue to hammer away at your life to bring those temptations so that he might trip you up. He doesn't give up. The time for Jesus' public ministry was now set to begin. He had come out of that wilderness And he came out victoriously. And now he was going to really begin this public ministry, really, to this world. We read in Luke 3.23, it tells us that when Jesus began his ministry, that he was about 30 years of age. I want you to get these figures in your head. Remember that when Jesus went to the cross... He was about 33 and a half years old. So that means that his public ministry lasted for a period of about three and a half years. That was the length of his ministry before he went to the cross. Now, I have um, a map here that I want to familiarize uh, you with about Jesus' ministry here. This area right here is where Jesus was water baptized. This is the Jordan River. This is where he was water baptized. It was probably in this area here where he was in the wilderness for 40 days. We're at the time now that Jesus has come out of the wilderness and where we're at in our text this morning is that he's going to make his way back up here to Nazareth in this area or this region that is called Galilee. Galilee was the major uh, area that Jesus ministered in, also in Samaria, Judea, and Perea. These were the main areas of ministry for Jesus. Just a little bit of geography for you guys to be able to familiarize yourself with. If we were to divide up Jesus' life into periods of time, this is how it would look. Uh, Jesus, his birth and his growing up consisted of 30 years. They're really called kind of the, the silent years for Jesus. Not much is said in scripture about those days of him growing up from a baby through a youth up to an adult. But then we also have the time of preparation. Now we know he was 40 days in the wilderness. We know he got baptized and his time coming down from Nazareth there. It might have been a couple of months. Then we have what's called his early ministry, about eight months, where uh, during that time we have the wedding that happened in Canaan. We have a conversation with Nicodemus. These are just some of the things. And the Samaritan woman where Jesus met her at the well. And that particular time lasted about eight months. We have the Galilean ministry of where I showed you up in the top there. That time frame up in this area was about two years. Jesus spent two years 
of ministry up in that area of Galilee. And then lastly, uh, he came, and not lastly, but he came to the area of Judea where he was there about a month and then in Perea for four months and then his last week before he went to the cross. That was Jesus' ministry. That was his whole life of 33 and a half years. So now let's turn back in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. This is going to be the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, we're told that he departed to Galilee. We uh, really, if we were to divide up the gospel of Matthew, just to give you a sense of what we're covering in this book, we'll see that from chapter 4 that we're in this morning all the way to chapter 18 of Matthew. Remember, there's 28 chapters in this gospel. From chapter 4 to chapter 18, that's all of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. From chapter 19 to 20, it's the Perean ministry, which only lasted for four months. And then from chapter 21 to 27, it's the last week. So you have seven whole chapters that are just covering the last week of Jesus' life before he went to the cross. And then in chapter 28, the last chapter, it's going to be the resurrection and the great commission of Jesus sending his disciples out. That's the whole book of Matthew. Some, though, have speculated that when Jesus heard that John was put in prison, they speculate that, uh, they wonder why did he depart for Galilee? It seems like he came out of the wilderness, he got word that John had been put in prison, and then all of a sudden he takes off for Galilee as if he's trying to separate himself from uh, possibly himself, something coming upon him. I have a problem with that kind of thinking in that the area that Herod Antipas uh, was ruler over, uh, you can see from this map here that he ruled this area of Perea, which the baptism was here where John the Baptist was, and he also ruled this area of Galilee. Herod Antipas was in control of those two areas. And for Jesus to leave the baptism, go up to the area of Galilee, it wouldn't have been to separate himself from Herod Antipas and being arrested by him also, as some have thought. I really believe that it's probably more likely that what Jesus realized is that John's time now of ministry, if him being put into prison, that it was going to change from a public ministry of John the Baptist to a prison ministry. He was now going to be placed in prison where he would have maybe been up for a period of a couple of years, been in this prison. And Jesus, in a sense, knew that John's public ministry was ended and he was going to begin now and to take over that public ministry. So he makes his way now back up to the area of Galilee. In Luke's gospel, we read that after Jesus came out of the wilderness, uh, after he came out of the wilderness, uh, that in verse 14, it says that Jesus returned, we're told, in the power of the Spirit. I think this is really interesting. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Uh, have you ever experienced the power of God in your life? In a, in, a, in, a, in a way that you would go, you know what? God, you, you just did something through me. Or, or Lord, you just gave me this compassion for somebody that I've never had. That was you, Lord. That was you doing something in me. Jesus returned to this area of Galilee, we're told, in the power of the Spirit. And it says that when he arrived, that news of him went out through all the surrounding regions and that he taught in their synagogues, plural, being glorified by all. Now, synagogues during the time of our Lord, the synagogue was not the temple. The temple was destroyed, remember, by the Babylonians. 
the temple that they uh, sacrificed in, that the priest would go in. That temple was destroyed. And so really during the Babylonian captivity, it was really the, the Jews that they began to build synagogues. Now, the synagogues were a central place of worship. And so when Jesus came up into the region of Galilee, there were numerous cities. And within each of those cities, if you had a population of Jews within a city, they would build a synagogue. It would be the place that they would come to gather. They would stand there uh, discussing, like we do when we come to church. They would be discussing the scriptures. But something else took place within the synagogue that we're not necessarily used to in most of our churches anyway is that it could be asked of a male, it wouldn't have been a woman, but it would have been of a male within the synagogue there that he might be asked if he could stand up and he would read the scriptures. And so typically, if you were asked to stand up, you would be handed a scroll. It's referred to as a book in here, but it would have been a scroll. And you might have uh, first read from the Torah or the Pentateuch. And they would read whatever passage it was. And then they would... um, Uh, also read from one of the prophets. And so those were really the two things. Remember, they only had the Old Testament at that time. And so they would stand there and they would read to the rest of the group and then there would be discussion about it. There was also at times where people were allowed to preach. So somebody would be traveling and a traveling preacher and he comes into the synagogue. Remember the Apostle Paul when he went out into all these cities to plant churches. He would come into the city. What did he first do? He went to the synagogue. Why? Because it was a forum for him to be able to stand up with all these people that were there that were religious people, but to be able to preach to them and to share the gospel within the synagogue. And so as Jesus was going about the region of Galilee... Going from city to city, he would seek out that synagogue and he would go in there and probably quite often they were giving him a time to be able to speak. When Jesus came into this region of Galilee, we're told that he, uh, when he came into this uh, area, he made his way back to Nazareth. Now, remember that Nazareth was the home or the place for Joseph and Mary before Jesus was even born. But remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He went out into Egypt. He came out of Egypt. And then when uh, they were warned by the angel, they made their way up to the area of Galilee and went back to their hometown of Nazareth. And so that's where Jesus was born and raised. Or not born, excuse me, but raised up in in the area there of Nazareth. Now, why do I say that? Because as Jesus in his ministry was going around and then finally making his way back to Nazareth, he would have been coming into a a village or a town that the people would have known him. Remember, he was 30 years old when he left. He had uh, probably a lot of acquaintances. People would have known him. As he made his way over to the synagogue there in Nazareth, Uh, there would have been people that would have been there that there's Jesus. Here's the one. Uh, They don't even really know who he is, but look what we read in Luke's gospel in verse 18. Jesus is there now, and he begins, he's given this opportunity to stand up and to be able to read really from the prophets. Remember that this prophecy that Jesus is reading out of the book of Isaiah, that it was written over 700 years before this day when Jesus is going to read this prophecy. Listen to what it says. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just think of this. Jesus is actually fulfilling this prophecy in himself as he's there in that synagogue Uh, reading it to the people. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because my father has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. My father has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover and recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
Notice in Luke's gospel, verse 19 there, that that last verse ends with a period. Do you see that in your Bibles? But where Jesus was reading from out of the scroll there in Isaiah 61, verse 2, there's no period there, there's a comma. Because really what goes on after that of what is said there, it says this. It says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then it's a comma, and it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left that portion out as he stood there and he read that to those that were in the synagogue. And I believe the reason he did is because that was something that was yet future. What Jesus was reading to them at that time, at that moment, was for their ear to hear now as Jesus stood there. When we uh, read in verse 20, look at your Bibles, verse 20, it says that Jesus, then after he read that, it says that he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant, the one that would normally bring that out to the person to read. And then Jesus sat down and and it says, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. (laughs) Get that picture in your mind. Jesus just stood up and read this prophecy of 700 years prior and says, it's being fulfilled in me right now. Could you imagine as the people that were in that synagogue that day were looking at Jesus and the words that he just said, how that sounded in their ears. It says that their eyes were fixed on him. Just look at all these people just looking at Jesus, probably their jaw down looking at Jesus there as he read that. And then he says to them in verse 21, he says, and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today it's fulfilled in your hearing. You're an eyewitness of this prophecy being fulfilled. Have you ever sat under teaching? And in that teaching you felt as if maybe the pastor was just speaking right to your heart hopefully that happens in this church that the holy spirit is actually uh, the one that's doing the speaking to your heart but sometimes people have sat there and thought you know that what's that pastor know about me it sounds like he's just talking right to me and in fact it's really not the pastor it's the holy spirit that is actually speaking And God has his way of doing that. I'm sure as those people sat there with their eyes fixed upon the Lord. And Jesus made that statement. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It probably really resonated in their hearts. Verse 22 says, So all bore witness to him. And they all marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said... Is this not Joseph's son? This is just Joseph. What would you? They weren't expecting that. Which gives you a little insight into Jesus and his growing up in this field. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Today, these things are fulfilled in your hearing. They speak of me. And then Jesus says to them in verse 23. You will surely say this proverb to me. Listen, look how he puts this. You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said to them in verse 24, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But look what it says, verse 26. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what, there was this great famine 
but nobody really was reaching out to the widows. That's what Jesus came to do, to reach out to the poor, the sick, the widows, those that were in need, but no one was reaching out. Verse 27, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Nahum, the Syrian. None of them were cleansed. This was not sounding good in the ears of those that were there in that synagogue on that day. Things began to change. At first, they they thought, oh, these words are so gracious that he's speaking. But these words are not so gracious. They didn't like it. Verse 28 says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Look how quick things changed. Now they're filled with wrath. They're angry at the words that Jesus said. What are you saying about us, Jesus? It was like he was pointing, and really the Holy Spirit was pointing a finger, really, at them. And they rose up, and they thrust him out of the city, and they laid him, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. That's pretty rad. That's pretty angry. They weren't just kind of like, oh, I'm mad. They were angry to the point of wanting to kill him. When you speak up for Jesus Christ, if you open your mouth for him, if you're unashamed, really say what you believe and what people need to hear, know this that there will be people at times that will hate what you say. They won't like what you stand for. Uh, That can be family members. That can be anyone. They will not like because it's a spiritual battle that is raging, that is going on. And that's what was transpiring here. Their own pride would not let them, allow them to accept the words of Jesus. But they took him out of the city and really were going to want to kill him. But look at verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them... He went away. What's interesting is as you read through the other Gospels, we don't really find any record that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth again. This was, this was his time. He came into that, that village where he grew up. He said these words. They ran him out of town and were going to kill him. But we also read in John 1.11 that we read that Jesus, that he came unto his own, speaking about the the nation of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. You know, Jesus was rejected by his own Jewish nation as the Messiah. Many rejected him. Some received, but many rejected. But even Jesus' own family members, his own brothers, were told, were in disbelief of him. They didn't even believe that he was the one, the Messiah. They even rejected. Jesus knew that. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. Have you ever been rejected by a family member for your faith in Jesus Christ? Has anyone at work or anyone ever said, you know, hey, I don't like, and rejected you for what you stand for? Jesus knows probably better than any one of us what it is to be rejected. After leaving, we're told, or some translations read, after abandoning Nazareth, after leaving the city, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Now, here is, I've been in this, uh, the city of Capernaum right here. Archaeologists have unearthed this whole area right here. This is the Sea of Galilee that you're looking at. This is the, uh, the city of Capernaum. And Jesus comes into this city of Capernaum. We read in uh, Luke 4, 31, it tells us that when he arrived in C- Capernaum, that he had a different kind of reception from the people. It says in verse 31, then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. 
And it says in verse 32 that they were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. There was something that Jesus being filled and full of the Holy Spirit as he stood there in these synagogues and preached these messages and spoke that he was some way they were distinguishing the difference between the way he spoke the words he spoke, how he spoke it of himself and any other person that has ever stood there. He spoke with great authority. They were astonished in the way that he spoke. You know, people get astonished. When you open your mouth and they see that you really care for them and love them and you really have a desire to see them come to Christ and you're standing there telling them words from the word of God that people may not ever say it with their mouth to you, but I believe that there are many people that get astonished at the words that are coming out of your mouth, that the compassion that you have for them and the love that you have for them, that's a God thing. Now turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. In verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, this is the same story that we're covering now in Matthew's gospel. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen great light. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. And so when Jesus came into the city of, of Capernaum, he's really designating this region of Zebulun and Nephtali. Remember that those were two of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. This was the same area where those tribes settled up in the area of Galilee. And what was going to be uh, said here and what he's saying is he's quoting from Isaiah 9 verse 2. It's a prophecy that Jesus would uh, come to this area of Galilee and dwell in that area of Galilee and come into this uh, city of Capernaum in particular. Capernaum was Jesus' home base. It's where he did most of his, uh, a lot of miracles, a lot of ministry went out of the city. So when he would go out through the regions of Galilee and the area of Galilee there, he would always come back there to Capernaum. It was, it was his home base, and he had people probably that he stayed with. Um, this is actually just a picture. I've actually walked in this synagogue. That's, a, that's a, the remains of a synagogue in Capernaum today. And it's pretty incredible, though that's a fourth-century uh, synagogue. And so if you, if you go there today, you'll find a, a hole that's di- dug out at the foundation of this particular synagogue. And when you look down into the hole, what they found is that underneath this synagogue, they believe that the first-century synagogue, possibly the one that Jesus himself was in, is underneath this synagogue here. Remember that when they built synagogues and they, uh, they, they did religious sites, whether it was a heathen site or a Christian site, they always built them on top of each other because this was a holy site, this was a place. And so they would build it on top. And so what you're seeing there is probably not, would not be the one that Jesus himself stood in, though it would have been maybe something of sim- very similar to this, uh, but underneath that, very possibly. When we come to verse 15 of Matthew's gospel here, where uh, this prophecy is being said by Matthew, remember Matthew all the way through the gospel here is proving this fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. And all of the prophets foretold that he was going to come. As a matter of fact, what we read here in uh, verse 13 when it uses the word that it might be fulfilled this is the fifth time already in 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 this uh, gospel that Matthew uses this word fulfilled that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet now prophecy uh, in Matthew's gospel we've already seen in Matthew 123 that 
he quoted Isaiah 7:14 that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. We read in chapter 2, verse 6, where Matthew quoted Micah 5, 2, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And then in chapter uh, 2, verse 15, he quotes Hosea 11, 1, which prophesied that Jesus was going to come out of Egypt. In chapter 2, verse 18, he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15, that he was going to, uh, to come... Uh, that his coming would lead to the killing of the children there that Herod uh, had killed, the, the children under two, two years of age and younger. In chapter 2, verse 23, he quotes Isaiah 11:1 1, that he would live in Nazareth. In uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, that his coming would be announced by a Elijah-like herald. That's, all, that's just so far in Matthew's gospel. And so prophecy is very important to the Jew for them to say, this is the Messiah because the prophets, they all foretold of these things. Have you ever looked at the probabilities of prophecy? The compound probability of prophecy being fulfilled? There's books that have been written. There's been mathematicians. That it, and I'm not a mathematician, but this is how my mind works. If you were to take eight prophecies of the Bible, how many of you have ever heard this before? If you took eight prophecies of the Bible, uh, and it was going to be fulfilled in one person in their lifetime, just eight of them. Remember that there was over 300 prophecies throughout Scripture fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. We're only talking about eight of them. For eight prophecies to be fulfilled exactly as the prophets said that they would, that that number, if you were to put it out into a number, would be one in ten to the 17th power, which that to me means nothing. But what does mean something to me is that that number means that this is one in 100 quadrillion. Do you know that number? Quadrillion? That's a lot. And so if you were to take, and here's a way that people have tried to explain it, take the whole state of Texas and take silver dollars and stack them up, that, this, this, this quadrillion, if you were to take all of those coins and stack them up over there, it would be two feet thick. Now take one coin out of all of those and put a mark on it and then have somebody randomly walking around through the state of Texas and then just reach down into that pile and that he's going to pick up that silver dollar that has the mark on it. That would be the kinds of odds that even eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one person in their lifetime. That's incredible. Over 300 in the life of Christ. Is Jesus Christ the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah to come? Matthew says, yes, he is, and I'll give you the proof of that. Here's the prophecies that said that it would happen. Very important. We know that when Jesus came, it says in verse 13, it says that Jesus came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. This was just a, a fishing village. That's all Capernaum was, a fishing, uh, uh, fishing village, but there's a lot that went on in the city. As a matter of fact, those of you that went through the inductive class with Joe, uh, you read about the paralytic that was being lowered down. This is the city that it happened in. The paralytic being lowered down through the roof when they broke through, that's where it happened, right here. You're seeing a picture of it uh, right here on the screen. All sorts of miracles took place within Capernaum, and it was Jesus' home base for ministry. But we also know that it was this fishing village. Uh, we, we read in, um, well, excuse me, we read in verse 13, it says, In the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, which I've already shared are the tribal names, uh, really just pointing out that this is the area that was prophesied about, uh, he also uh, brings out in, in verse uh, 13, he says, he refers to Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, that could actually be literally translated the circle of nations. And so what are we talking about here in this prophecy that it would be Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, remember that the lower part of Israel uh, around Jerusalem and the whole area of Judea is where uh, that would have been probably, we'll call it the upper class. <laughs> the area up in Galilee, that would have been kind of the lower class. But that would have been where a lot of the heathen lived. 
There were Jews up there also, but there was a lot of heathens that lived up there, a lot of foreign nations that encompassed this, encompassed this area. And so here we have also this prophecy saying that Jesus was going to minister in Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, that to me tells me, you know what? That's our Lord. Where does our Lord go to minister? He goes out to those that are in need. He goes to the places that nobody would want to go. And that's very important. I, I know that when we lived in Wales, you know, we lived in a, uh, in a city that was called Ely. I've shared this before. A non-desirable city there in Wales. Not the place that most people wanted to live. When we planted uh, uh, the church there in Swansea, we were in a city, uh, a portion of Swansea uh, called Port Tennant. And any pastor in that city would say, you don't want to plant a church in Port Tennant. That's uh, an undesirable side of town. That's not where you would want to, to draw your people from. But that's exactly the place that Jesus would want to go. He would want to go to those places. We see this place and this timing that it was all according to prophecy. Verse 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does it sound familiar? Those were the words of John the Baptist, weren't they? As he came on the scene and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus now really is picking it up. He's taking over where John left off. And he's coming with the same words. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to repent. You need to turn. It's the first recorded words out of the mouth of Jesus. Repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know that this Sea of Galilee, there's a little aerial view for you to be able to see. Uh, Capernaum right here. We're going to be getting into this next week. But here's the Sea of Galilee. This, this is all Galilee out here, all the region that Jesus went about preaching repentance in. We know that Galilee, and as you read in your Bibles, the Sea of Galilee is actually a New Testament name. It's, uh, in the Hebrew, it's actually referred to as the, the Sea of Gennesaret. The Hebrews uh, called it that in the Old Testament. And then we have the Roman name for it. It's called the Sea of Tiberias. And so whenever you're reading that, we're all talking about the Sea of Galilee. But in verse 18, it says that Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen, a fisherman's village. Here's Jesus. What I like about this is it's just a very natural Way. Jesus just walking along, walking along this seashore and sees these men out there fishing. And those are the ones that he calls. You know, none of the disciples, not any one of them, were ever decided upon in a boardroom. Nobody sat down and said, hey, who are we picking to, 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 to fill this spot? This is Jesus walking along, sees these fishermen. These are not the type we'd normally want to pick for these positions. That's who I want. Aren't you glad, church? Because he takes people like you and I, just everyday people, everyday life, and he says, I want to use you. And here he calls Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them in verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Do you know what? I, through the years, I have taught many classes on evangelism. Class after class on evangelism through the years. But you know what the best place to teach anybody how to share their faith? Just go do it. Just go out and open your mouth and go share. Take somebody under your wing and take them out if they've never, and show them how to go and open their mouth and to share their faith with somebody That's the best way. That's how Jesus did it as he discipled these men. He didn't sit them down in classrooms. He didn't get them degrees. He said, follow me and follow my footsteps. Watch how I minister. Watch how I do it. And then do likewise. 
But we see in verse 20 that immediately they left their nets and they followed him, which just tells me that these men were already prepared. They were ready to go. And when, the, when Jesus called them, they were willing to drop their nets, drop their livelihood, leave their parents, leave their families, do those things that, to come and follow after Jesus. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus will cost you. It costs you to follow after Christ. I, I had to count the cost when we moved our whole family to Wales to leave our family, leave our home church, leave my position as a pastor there at the church I was in. And to go to this country and to, and to be there as missionaries, it costs us something to do that. But you know what? You'll know that cost, it, it'll never outweigh the, the blessing that you'll receive if you're obedient to the Lord and what he calls you to do. Verse 21, and we're getting close. Going out from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son, uh, I've already read that. We, we see that these four disciples that were called in Matthew's account anyway, this is Jesus just coming up into Galilee. We know that Philip and Bartholomew, which is also Nathaniel and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon and Judas Iscariot, these were all other disciples that Jesus called at other places Matthew was in the tax office when Jesus called him. He just walked out and called Matthew right from his place of employment. There is tax, and, and that was there in Capernaum. Very, uh, very natural in the way that Jesus did it. But then look at verse 23. And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Do you see what the ministry of Jesus was there? It was a ministry of teaching. It was a ministry of preaching. It was a ministry of healing. That's what Jesus did. And he took the, really the good news out in that area to the, for the people to hear. But it came through the manner of teaching and preaching. What's the difference? What's the difference between teaching and preaching? You see, on a, any given Sunday, I could be up here teaching the Word of God. But do you know that teaching is primarily for believers? And that preaching is primarily for unbelievers? But in a message, you could have both. You could have somebody teaching, but there could also be preaching going on because there could be somebody that didn't know Christ. But Pastor Chuck years ago, Chuck, Pastor Chuck Smith, he, uh, in his early days of ministry, he said, you know, when I started out in ministry as a pastor, every single Sunday I got up there and I preached a message to these people in my church. Week after week, preaching a salvation message. And you know what? The people were weak. They were sick sheep because, you know what, you can't just get up there and preach to the choir week after week to people that already know Christ. They need to be taught the word of God. But there is preaching that goes along. And so Chuck learned, I need to start teaching these people, not just preaching the word to them. And a lot of times it really just has to do with how you bring that text out that you're teaching in because sometimes it consists of both. He also, though, part of his ministry was healing. And healing, I want to say for us as a church, we have a number of people in our church right now that I know, and we've prayed, you're praying, we're praying for God to heal. Does God still heal today? In your mind, does he heal today? I believe that he does. I have no question in my mind that God does miracles today, that God is still able to heal. But why does God not always heal everyone all the time? And some of you have been tested to the very core of your faith as to whether or not you're going to believe that God is even listening and hearing your prayers because you have not seen a healing in your life. But let me say this, that I believe at times it takes a greater faith on the part of somebody that has not been healed, it takes a greater faith and a greater patience and a greater endurance 
if we could say, uh, to go through those times of testing and not lose hope, not to give up on, not to question God, because God does not always heal. But does God heal? Yes, he did. We see that Jesus went all through Galilee, full of the Holy Spirit, praying for people, and that people were not just praying, but touching people, and people were getting healed. But I believe that we, what we read here was a picture, really, of Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 24, it says, Then his fame went out throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. But we see here Jesus really, really healing these things. But you know what? There was always a bigger picture in healing. You know, Jesus never healed people just for the sake of just blowing their minds with a miracle. He always healed them because there was for a bigger picture. The bigger picture was is that they needed salvation. These demon-possessed people uh, these people that were in sickness, they, they lived in a fallen world. They lived in a world full of sin that has caused destruction within even people's bodies. They lived in, a, they lived in this world of, of even people that were demon-possessed, and Jesus delivered them from de- oppression and depression and demon-possession. And it was all a bigger picture of Christ's ability to heal. Lastly, and we'll close with this. When it says that great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond, that's a big area. You saw the map. People came from all over. They were drawn as these miracles even were being done. They were drawn to Jesus. And that was another purpose, really, of these miracles that were transpiring. People were being drawn to Christ. It's also interesting that the people in the southern part of it, they were all coming up to the northern part where Jesus was, and Jesus was healing them there. 